So in the world of manufacturing, we separate manufacturing between two entities. The first entity, which is physical processes. So the actual physical process that you take to transform a material from one side to the other. This is what we talk about advanced manufacturing. This is what we talk about the spectrum of uh, advancing physical processes and understanding physical processes. Smart manufacturing is a term, is a, is a term that is somewhat recent However, it has been there and the concept has been there since uh, long ago. The concept of smart manufacturing is how you can profit from the digitalization of manufacturing and how you can integrate new concepts such as computing concepts, such as artificial intelligence concepts to actually take the data and augment the data to make it meaningful. Smart manufacturing for me is the fundamental cornerstone that defies corruption. If you have corruption in institutions, the only way to lift a society, to lift a county, to lift a state, to lift a country is through smart manufacturing because data has no emotions. Data has no, uh, there is no question when it comes to data. If you instrument something and you get the data and you put the policies in place where the data is accessible, manufacturing is the sole way to fight corruption. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on business and creativity, entrepreneurship and leadership, failure and growth, and so much more. Did you know South Carolina's aerospace and aviation industry is second only to agriculture? Since 2011, when Boeing opened their second Dreamliner final assembly and delivery facility, South Carolina's aerospace footprint has taken off at an incredible clip, clocking in at over $24 billion in annual economic impact. With over 500 aerospace-related companies, this industry continues to define the future of the state and region. Any disruptions or changes to this industry will have a massive impact on society, on transportation, and on the many people who work in aerospace. Today, we meet a man who is revolutionizing manufacturing processes in aerospace and other related fields. That means his work has far-reaching implications. Thankfully, His work is not just a job. For Rami Herrick, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of South Carolina's McNair Center, it's his passion and purpose, his vocation and advocation. During the first nine years of his life, Rami lived in and out of bunkers during a full-fledged civil war in Lebanon. It was there he realized his desire to improve society in any way that he could. Manufacturing, a proxy for human productivity and ingenuity, was his vehicle to do just that. The University of South Carolina's McNair Center is a a consortium of uh, different research aspects that are important for the aerospace industry 
as well as to induce innovation and induce um, research in the state of South Carolina. And the McNair Center has several research areas from future factories to automated fiber placement to digital transformation to composites manufacturing and so on. As soon as we stepped foot into the McNair Center, we could tell it's a place where interesting things happen. I think the full-size jet black helicopter inside one of the labs gave that away. But we wanted to know what really goes on here and the impact of the work they do. The McNair Center is special because think about it as a hospital for medical students. This is a place where industry and education meets at the same location. So what happens, our students work on real life industrial projects. And as such, they are getting their training and they are getting their engineering skills perfected with this interaction and with this friction with the industry. And therefore, at the end, once they graduate, they are job ready from day one. The McNair Center is very heavy on workforce development. We like to think that everything we do actually touches on the, the life of a human throughout his life cycle. Uh, we work with the Adventure Museum where we help them fine tune the aerospace exhibit. And this is geared towards uh, kids that are 10 years old, 11 years old. So this range of group. Uh, we work with high schools. For example, we worked with the R2I2, uh, Richland 2 Innovation uh, School that is uh, set up in Richland County where we help them develop a, a dedicated design and manufacturing course for high school students so that they are ready before even they come to college. Then within the college, uh, we have this friction, we have this interaction with uh, industry that helps fine tune the skills. And then fast forward, we have the graduate programs and our graduate students, as well as so many different industrial um, relationships where industry comes in, spends time, we interact with them. And also from time to time, we offer uh, courses for industry. We have a wide range of uh, support that we do. And sometimes we don't even do it in a face-to-face uh, -face setup. We actually very interactively use uh, LinkedIn Live to disseminate knowledge as much as possible for the good of the state and the nation. And with aerospace being the second largest industry in South Carolina, building industry relations early is extremely important. Industrial relationship that we have range from training and supporting them to get their future work skills all the way to working on fundamental research and coming up with cutting edge and innovative solution that we can use to actually support the industry in dealing some of the tasks that they have. There's so many examples that I can cite from different applications that we've had with industry where we were working on basic fundamental research to solve a real day problem that they have currently going on in their facilities. With NASA, we work on a lot of current problems relevant to composites manufacturing, how we can accelerate the rate of manufacturing. We've had several projects, a few examples of them. We worked on computer-aided process planning where we can shorten the life cycle of moving from an ID to actually the manufacturing of composite and thus therefore reducing the uh, life cycle of development for composites parts. From the other aspect, also working with NASA, we did a project relevant to the inspection and accelerating the inspection and removing defects uh, when it comes to the world of composites manufacturing. 
On the local scale, with, uh, within industry within South Carolina, we have worked with Nephron Pharmaceuticals to actually create a sterile robotic uh, environment to actually fill syringes with certain, certain medication that um, we needed to do it in a certain automated fashion and actually control some of the elements and the environment around it. And this is a big success story because this started as a senior design for students. And right now it moved on where almost two students from that team that started, the first five students are now full-time hired at the industry working on the project. And it came a full back circle where the University of South Carolina and Nephron are developing a joint lab together uh, towards this endeavor. So the McNair Center, uh, I've spent a handful, probably the past six, seven years having experience with it. But like Joseph, that was you know a few weeks ago. That was your first time ever going through the McNair Aerospace Center. Oh, like, yeah. what, what was it like? It was it was such an amazing experience. But, but you know, you, what's interesting was you, when you when you pull up, you, you you can tell something's interesting is happening at the space. But you walk in, and then. It, it sort of just it, sort of these secrets are revealed as you start walking down the hallway. Some of the secrets, I guess, like we you know we can't even talk about um, because they are secretive. But you you know you sort of peer into some of these lab spaces and you you definitely see the future uh, in front of you. And then I remember walking up to Rami's uh, little slice corner of the, of the world. world, right? Yeah, and it's sort of like you just st have stepped into again, the future of manufacturing. Yeah, I think for me, because uh, I haven't been back in some of that that build out of the space in a couple of years. And so, you know, when I was with the University of South Carolina, the McNair Center was sort of just in its genesis. You know, only a few of those spaces were actually set up. So they've got, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint, you know, it's just amazing that, you know, they've got equipment that's nowhere else in the world. They've got like this carbon fiber replacement machine that's like, I don't know, probably third to me. It feels like, you know, a, this skyscraper of a piece of equipment. Uh, it's probably like 20 to 30 feet tall. And, um, you know, in fact, I used to crawl around with an intern, like trying to figure out the best way to photograph and, and do videography work to start kind of capturing just the immense amount of cool stuff that's sitting underneath that roof that's sort of, I kind of like you said, un unassuming from the outside. Because um, it looks like just like a big warehouse. And I'm well. And, and speaking of warehouse, I remember you telling me when we when we first got there that when you were there several years ago, they did not have all that that space wasn't all built up yet. Um, so you know it was predominantly just an empty warehouse. And then you might have had a few um, large constructed cubicles, if you will, that where where you had uh, uh, projects going on. But when but now it's just all filled. I think that they are are about 95% capacity with that overall building. And, and all of that being a place for collaborative research with industry and undergraduate, and even graduate students, all working on, you know, big problems that involve, you know, composite work, combustion, predictive maintenance, you know, even unmanned vehicles. You know, when you step into it, it's almost like this labyrinth of like everywhere you turn is like a cool little vignette of something that you're looking at and what's going to be the future. You've got robots, you've got composite materials, there's got this, it's a, basically a big oven uh, where they're baking, you know, composite material. And it's just like kind of like this overwhelming almost experience of just cool research happening. And, and even more importantly, the people inside it, you can tell that they're just excited about what right. they're doing. So, you know, I think in, in all of the conversations, too, the thing that stood out to me is how important both to Rami and then to the program it, that, that the, 
applied research is, is a, a sort of key, right? I mean, they don't bemoan basic or fundamental research, but really their focus is, is on applied research and in engagement with and or collaboration with industry brands. Is that correct? Yeah, and especially, and this is why the center itself is so cool to walk around, really touching on that interdisciplinary piece of it. Um, so you've got everything from, you know, specialized areas just to look at predictive maintenance. So what does that even mean? Like, you know, for a manufacturing line, let's say, um, you know, they want to be able to know when a certain part or piece of machinery is going to break well in advance. You know, inevitably things break, right? It doesn't matter how, how, how well we engineer it, something is going to break. And so if we know, you know, that that part's going to break 30 hours into use, we can go ahead and have the teams or processes in place so that logistics line keeps moving as efficiently as possible. You know, that's just like one what seems like a small problem, but over a big course of time adds up. So it's, it's things like that that the center is looking at and helping, trying to help industry solve those kinds of problems all within a space like that. You know, you said it's about 95% capacity. Do you, do you, where do you see this going? You see them growing, finding a larger space, finding a secondary space and continuing this work because it, it doesn't seem like, it, it just seems like the nature of society right now is we need you know, a multiple of these projects going on to address or resolve the many challenges that we face. Absolutely. So I would say from from USC's standpoint and their Office of Economic Engagement, that's what they're set up to help basically broker is, you know, those kinds of partnerships with like an IBM and, and then kind of proving out that case, hey, we're at capacity and they've got centers all over USC's campus. But you know, they're building out an entire innovation district towards the river. And so if they can prove out, you know, that we now need a facility for X, and this is where definitely industry participates in sort of helping justify that kind of investment, or sometimes even participates in that kind of investment of building out a new facility, um, that that's what an office at USC is set up to specifically do uh, on the behalf of the researchers. It's clear that innovation is blossoming at the McNair Center. But Rami filled us in on why he thinks South Carolina is a leading contender in manufacturing. South Carolina is extremely well positioned not to only lead manufacturing in the local area, but really on a global scale. Because of the customer and the stakeholders nearby, I mean, you have the aircraft manufacturers there, you have automotive. So all of them being close by provides a value add to the university. That's Vish Narayan. He's been with IBM for 40 years, and he's got a few things to add about Rami's work. The uniqueness of USC is in the area of advanced technologies using 3D printing and using uh, the nanotechnology for the wireframes of wing, wing assembly in an aircraft. These are new things because it's multidisciplinary, and USC is able to bring together those graduate students and postgraduate to be able to do some of these advanced topics. So that is similar but different as well as we work with different universities. As a state, we have all the qualifications that we need from, in terms from um, fundamental infrastructures, uh, abilities, and um, however, what I see that the state of South Carolina needs to be doing is uh, more focused on topics that are relevant for industries of the future. And South Carolina is more than well positioned to lead that effort on the global scale. What is the future to you? What do you think you're going to be working on in the next five to 10 years? 
First of all, to better understand uncertainty when it comes to the world of manufacturing. This is something that is so fundamental. In a lot of time, we work on automation, we work on control, we work on sensors, we work on the physics of manufacturing, and there is so much uncertainty that's going around. A lot of time people, when you talk about manufacturing and you talk about robots, they imagine themselves in some Hollywood movie where machines are manufacturing something or doing something on their own. This is way far from reality. Only two years ago, in 2018, uh, Elon Musk has actually reversed the production of Tesla 3 and actually have said that it was a big mistake on his side to employ heavy automation and that Tesla was so dependent on automation and this is why failure was taking place and humans are underrated. I think in the next five to 10 years, the goal that I would like to set for myself is, first of all, to keep on developing the Future Factories platform that here at the University of South Carolina we have been pioneering with, but also to make sure that we answer and we tackle fundamental problems such as uncertainty when it comes to so many of the things relevant to automation, but also how to keep the human in the loop and actually how to increase the skill of the human as he is part of the loop so that the humans can interfere, can change things when it comes to production and can make sure that the whole process uh, becomes more fine-tuned and uh, performs a better throughput. IBM has been working with USC for the McNair Center. And one of the areas where we were looking at Rami was the area of the predictive maintenance on critical rotating, rotating assets like helicopters or improving manufacturing quality. So these are areas which are of interest and in how do we bring it together in a prototype and validate. And USC had a good set of stakeholders and other companies nearby which were actively looking into the McNair Center in terms of aerospace or in terms of automotive or in terms of electronics. So that brought us together and Rami and I started to work on a set of topics which is now leading to the next generation what we call collaborative workshop. So let's talk a little bit more about where that's led to now. Like, kind of break that down uh, for our, our general audience that may or may not be as familiar with with what you do. Um, so that project that you're working on now and where it's leading, like go into the specific details. What does that mean? The one we are currently trying to collaborate on is something called NextGen, how the work cell continues to learn and adapt based on the variations of different products to be de developed or produced in the work cell. And this is one of the core fundamentals of industry for all. How do I personalize Excel based on the variabilities of product? And this is in its initial stage, which will bring together the Excel, the analytics, and the collaborative robot, where a human and a robot are going to co-work on the same uh, product. We are honored to have our podcast, Of Note, recognized with a 2020 Webby Honoree Award for our debut season. The Webby Awards is the leading international award honoring excellence on the internet. Awarded by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, it's the internet's highest honor. You can help us continue to grow the podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing with your friends and colleagues. Rami's perspective on his work 
and his philosophy on education is the culmination of his entire personal journey. A little bit about my background, I am uh, born and raised in Lebanon, which is a country in the Middle East. I'm very proud of my roots. I'm very proud from where I come from, despite the fact that uh, the start of my life was uh, very, very unordinary. I actually, we were in full-fledged civil war, and for the first nine years of my life, uh, we were in bunkers. I did not have, for a good eight years of my life, we did not have a home, so we were moving around from my aunt's house to my grandparents' house to a hotel somewhere. Despite all of that, I believe that I've learned a lot of things. Uh, one of them, especially from uh, my mother, is resilience to so many of um, the changes that you can face you in life. Um, I've always been, um, I've always been motivated to, to, to learn. So uh, despite the fact that I did not go to school for several years, this did not stop me. Uh, nowadays, I see a lot of people worried that people like kids need to go to school. I'd like to answer that I missed so many years and I ended up with a uh, engineering degree, two masters and a PhD. So nothing can stop you if, if you want to do it. So I lived in a, um, I want to say, 50 by 50 square miles until I was 23 years old. So I never left a very small portion of land. And then suddenly, it's going to be a crazy story for a lot of people. I took an airplane for the first time and I took a three hours car drive. For a lot of people, that can be not much. For me, I've never been in the car more than an hour, so or else you would be out of the country. So I traveled to France. I had a great experience to discover uh, Western culture. I lived there for four years. I did my PhD, I did my studies, and ever since I've been on the move, I came to the US, I lived in Indiana, in Virginia. The longest I've been in the same place has been South Carolina, for, which is my home for the last uh, seven years. I do believe I'm a South Carolinian now, although I don't speak Southern yet. Um, so this is, uh, this is a little bit my story. I've, lived, I've taught students in three different continents. I've taught hundreds of students in Europe and France, hundreds of students in, in Lebanon, and. Um, hundreds of students in the United States. This gives me a different perspective for everything I do because I try to rationalize how would people see it in, in Europe, how would people see it in Asia, and how would people see it in the United States or in, in America. You mentioned you've lived in three places. You, you, know, you appreciate liberal arts. Who, how are you sensitive to what is needed in society? In my home country, corruption is very so enrooted in everything. And the fact that the IMF gives money to a country that is corrupted doesn't make sense. It just does not make sense. There are no support policies. There is, I believe that for the benefit of industrialized nations and non-industrialized nations, money should trickle through manufacturing. I believe that industry should trust more academia, especially when they see certain entities like the University of South Carolina that is interested in the relationship. At one point, the industry needs to hire a skilled workforce. If they don't engage in the discussion with academia and they don't tell academia how they want their future workforce to look like, we will be graduating people that are not job ready. 
And this won't be for the benefit for our students because they will not be employable. And this will not be for the benefit for the industry because they will not be able to find the skilled labor. So I would say let's engage in the discussion, let's continue the discussion, and let industry uh, sponsor people working within the industry to participate at all level of academia. We are not researchers sitting behind the desk with the target of publishing a paper. We want to make a change in society, and therefore this change has to be meaningful for industry and the society. It's clear. Rami believes his work can change society as a whole. And that's the key to how he approaches innovation. I define innovation as something that will be for the benefit of society, something that can enhance, something that can bring an advantage for humans in society as a whole. So there are two things for every aspect of manufacturing. There is functional and aesthetics. There is something that is functional. So a car that has four wheels, that is functional. The aesthetics, a car that looks good and makes you feel good. I define innovation as something that is fundamentally functional, however, also brings this flavor of uh, for humanity to elevate the whole society. One of the biggest challenges for innovation is, um, is I want to say, doing innovation at the right time. So innovation, you, we can make the most cutting edge new product that humans or the society is not ready for, and it will be uh, shut down. I believe that manufacturing operates on the timeline of uh, society, and that manufacturing should answer society uh, within the concept of just in time, just in sequence, at the right time. So one of the biggest challenges of innovation is to make things that are relevant and are needed today. You know, Laura, what surprised me most uh, about some of the conversations with Rami uh, was how motivated he is around wanting to have a positive influence on society. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm probably not as surprised. His story is so compelling. He uh, I think he mentions he, he grew up um, in Lebanon and for the first decade of his life, you know, pretty well endured quite a lot of hardship and saw quite a lot. I'm sure that had a, a lasting mark on Rami. But but he he, off, he he very much, you can see that what's underneath, un, you know, what's sort of undergirding his, his work is this sense of really wanting to has a, have a positive impact on society, on workforce, on productivity, so that everyone can uh, can prosper and everybody can, um, you know, anyone in, in the community can can be prosperous. Well, in manufacturing, being that that vehicle for you know workforce development and innovation and places for people to even just personally grow. I mean, I, I feel like when we talk about manufacturing, it's almost in this context always around political gains, you know, we, we, we are economic development gains. Um, but for Romney, it, it's this place and a, and a methodology where it's even opportunity. You know, manufacturing is a space that people can come into and almost also get that that sense of feeling of creating something from nothing. And you were part of that process. And it's a way for money to flow and economics to flow in a transparent way that negates 
you know, his word choice of, of corruption. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he, he I mean, I think he, he's almost like looking at it instead of a, of, of a business or a brand's value chain. He's kind of looking at society's, you know, our country's or a community's value chain and seeing manufacturing be like the the starting point of value creation, really. Right. In a way. And, and how it empowers that workforce like you're talking about. Or a place for, you know, somebody that's never had an opportunity in, a, I'll say, a more normal work setting. That's a place for them to start. Uh, is in getting that first job in a manufacturing setting and where that can lead is sort of endless. And I, I feel like, you know, we've got an entire programs actually in South Carolina that help kind of uh, draw back the blinds on what it's actually like to work in these smart facilities. It's not like this perception of the turn of the century. Uh, they, you know, these are these are highly technical, and that's not going away. You know, it's it's um, you know we're actually hoping robots are going to take over those mundane tasks that can be automated. That's what the robots there for. But really, it's freeing up you know the human mind and and workforces start doing more the the, the nimble and and you know design and and you know the the more challenging pieces of the actual manufacturing process itself. Yeah, I think I think what is so um, wonderful about his his viewpoint on uh, advanced or you know smart manufacturing for me too is this idea that he 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 doesn't see the human subordinate to the robot. To your point, the robot is doing automation is doing mundane things repeatedly, you know, ideally without a whole lot of variance. But it, it, in his viewpoint, the human has become more of a director level, more, it's more... Elevated than yes, human. Yes, it's elevated, yeah. And I think a lot of times people potentially even feel that they might be replaced by automation or that, um, you know, ultimately, what are we what are we as humans going to be doing? But uh, again, in his viewpoint, what's so positive about it is that he, he feels like smart manufacturing is a place where humans can succeed and it be elevated and not be subordinate. To well, them. and his funny way of looking at things must be working for him because we actually just got word this morning uh, that Romney has been recognized as one of the 20 most influential professors in the field of smart manufacturing. That's awesome. That is so cool and so well-deserved. Um, his passion for his field. I, I mean, I, you, you, I think everybody, when we were on set with him, everybody felt it. For my colleagues uh, in the research world, I fundamentally believe that basic research is important, but I believe that applied research is far more important than fundamental research. I believe that for my colleagues, my researchers, that if you communicate with industry, you will be surprised to see how many of the things you're working on can actually be translated to the society. Instead of this research being a glorified publication or a nice uh, brochure somewhere or a great paper with a lot of citations, this, this research of yours can translate to something that can make society better and something that can make uh, your environment and the environment of people around you better. So I fundamentally believe in applied research and I would like to see basic research migrating. And on that note, Rami shares three actionable tips for researchers to not only succeed, but to flourish. The first one is engage when it comes to uh, senior design and undergraduate education of students during their last year with the industrial partners. You would be surprised, and this is from personal experience, how many times this can be transformed to become a research project. 
So starting with a little problem, demonstrating to industry that academia can be an answer to their problems through a little project can trickle down and can, can become big and become a major uh, research project down the road. The second one is participate within your own professional community. I myself, I am in the Society of Manufacturing Engineers and in SAMPI, I participate in the meetings. In those meetings, there are always B2B meetings and face-to-face -face meetings that they are trying to connect researchers with uh, industry. I have found enormous profit from going to those meetings, interacting with industrialists and communicating with them. And actually, a lot of my ideas for innovation happens while I'm discussing with people and we're discussing for the future. And then I come down and I start writing proposals on them. So this is for uh, the second tip. The third tip is just look around you. Make a simple search of what industries are around you, wherever you are located, and just go visit them. Try to find someone, send emails out, visit them, and a little bit of energy when it comes to that, it will pay back off enormously. When it comes to a man like Rami, someone with so much commitment, intelligence, and drive, we couldn't help but ask, what makes him successful? I never ever compare myself to anyone. I am trying to run a race between me and myself. My goal on a daily basis is, what will I learn today? I love this quote by Steve Jobs, which is like, this is, this is something that drives me. If I wanted to please people, I would sell ice cream. And this is something that I am, I'm not trying to please people. I'm trying to make things better for a society and not only in certain individuals. So sometimes it's okay not to please people and speak up your mind and say what you think and empower yourself and move along. So my experience with Rami has been very good and productive because he's, he's able to bring together the, the appropriate skills, but he himself is well experienced in these areas of the coming together of electronics, mechanical, and the AI brought together. This is a new area which he's starting to lead and getting recognized in that area. Plus, he's also working with the state-of-the-art tools in terms of new materials. How do you train your students, or you as a, as a research scientist, how do you tackle problems? What's your process for that? Before the start of the problem solving is, I make sure that the people that are in my team, they are um, hand-selected, they, they have been given all opportunities to actually make sure that uh, they grow within their own boundary at the same time as being part of the team. So this is something that is very, very fundamental from the first, from the, from the get-go. And then the second thing, I believe in involving people. I fundamentally believe whether I'm doing a research proposal or we're writing a paper or we are even uh, mentoring a new student coming to the team, I believe, just like, a, just like we say, it takes a village to raise a kid, I believe it takes the whole team to lift someone up and get them to uh, the level where they are part of the team and part of the problem solving. You said hand selecting team members. What's the most important or a top trait that you look for when you hand select? I look for passionate people. I look for people that um, they, have, they have a desire, they want to be part of something, and then I give them all the spectrum to actually hone their skills and 
make sure that they fit perfectly within the team. The fundamentals for a successful environment is once you have defined the um, once you have defined the boundaries that can help everyone feel that they are part of the team, is to actually uh, push people to achieve what they want. I always believe it, and whenever I sit with any one of my students, I tell them, let's have a discussion. What is it that you want to achieve in life? Like, what is your own personal goal? And then I'm gonna say, what is my own goal for my research? And if we discuss, we're gonna find the intersection and that intersection will be something that you will be running towards because this is what you want, but also it's fulfilling the purpose and it's fulfilling what the funding agencies and whomever that I am after that can create that. For Rami, his work is more than a job. It's what makes him tick. So we had one final question, and that was this. What does he love most about being a teacher? The best part of being in education is those messages you get five or ten years later from students that you continue to inspire them and you continue to motivate them and that that what you told them actually they put it into daily use these emails and these messages despite the fact that i receive them every couple of days every time the emails uh, hits on me very very personal it makes me feel i'm doing the right thing it gives me the motivation to keep on doing and keep on passionately giving from uh, all of my heart to, to my students. I am Rami Harrick. Those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nother. And I'm Laura Quarter. This is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Mariah Reed. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matthew Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at scribblesc. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Of Note. The average person touches about 50 Millikan products a day. If you've taken a trip somewhere using an airline, you're coming into contact with the Millikan product. When you're getting to your car, you're, you're touching Millikan fabric. When you go to sleep in your bed, actually, you're touching a product that Millikan actually has, has, has actually played a role in terms of making.